Before we get started today, just a quick reminder about our Buy Me A Coffee memberships. As you may already know, you can treat our office staff to one to five coffees a month, and in return you get exclusive benefits like special newsletters, behind the scenes content, direct access to Q&As with us, as well as a special shout out here on our podcast. And today I want to thank our Buy Me A Coffee members, Anderson Da Silva, Kat Kramer, Fra, Peter Suffering, Anna Lund, Mabel Shu, and someone who chose to remain anonymous. We're delighted that this list is growing and we thank you very much for your support. And if you like to support independent journalism and hear your name on our podcast, just head over to Buy Me A Coffee and subscribe to one of the membership tiers. If you cannot make a monthly commitment, you can still tip us a cup of coffee to give us the energy we need to cover a country as complex as Brazil and a region as complex as Latin America. We appreciate all your support. Click on buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report to find out more. This past weekend, Marcelo Arruda, a local treasurer of the Workers' Party in Foz do Iguaçu, a city in southern Brazil, celebrated his 50th birthday with a Lula-themed party. To the horror of Marcelo's friends and family, the event was crashed by Jorge Guaranho, a supporter of incumbent far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. Olha, o que a gente tem nas imagens é que chega um indivíduo por volta das 23 horas e 40 minutos. Ele chega na festa que estava ocorrendo ali do guarda municipal. E ali em pro-Bolsonaro slogans, he stormed the party venue and shot Arruda dead. E durante um certo momento ele também teria dito que aqui é Bolsonaro, de acordo com o que a testemunha informou. Political observers worry that this latest example of violence is little more than a prelude to what could be the most vicious election in Brazilian democratic history. Porque ele chegou lá ouvindo música que remetia a Bolsonaro, que falava mito, enfim, a gente tem que apurar tudo. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. The Electoral Investigation Group of the Unihi University has tallied more than 1,100 instances of political violence in Brazil since early 2019, counting any kind of aggression intended to interfere with political leadership. The most infamous of these incidents took place in 2018, when left-wing city councillor Marielle Franco was assassinated in Rio de Janeiro. The country exploded in protest after the influential black and LGBT politician was gunned down. But he did nothing to stop the violence. With this year's election seeing a head-to-head between Brazil's two most popular and most hated figures, President Jair Bolsonaro and former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, national politics have become even more hostile. Adding fuel to the fire, Bolsonaro has continuously engaged in violent rhetoric, often against his political opponents. In one of his most notorious declarations, he called on his supporters to, quote, 
gunned down members of the Workers' Party at a 2018 rally in Acre, in northern Brazil. Data suggests that instances of political violence are likely to become more common as the country approaches the election. That was the case in the lead-up to the 2020 municipal vote, and it appears to be happening again now. In the first quarter of 2022, Brazil recorded 113 acts of political violence, 49% more than in the previous quarter. A couple of factors make this rise even more worrisome. The first is that the president is openly threatening to challenge the election results if he loses the popular vote. Another is that Brazilians are arming themselves faster than ever. The current administration has made at least 31 changes to federal laws on the access to firearms. The number of gun permits issued per year in Brazil has jumped from under 50,000 prior to Bolsonaro taking office to over 200,000 last year. Increased access to firearms and a hostile political landscape make for a dangerous cocktail in a country that is experiencing an acute democratic backslide. To explain the history of political violence in Brazil and its possible consequences in this year's election, we have invited the historian André Pagliarini, an assistant professor of history at Hampton Sydney College in Virginia. He is also a columnist for the Brazilian Report. André, welcome back to the show. And I'd like to begin by asking you if political violence has always been a defining feature of Brazilian politics or if this is something entirely new. There's a very common myth that Brazilians, particularly Brazilian elites, like to tell about the country's history, which is that it's been a relatively peaceful history. Uh, relatively little racist violence, like in the United States. Uh, generally speaking, problems are negotiated and resolved without great violence. Uh, this has never really been true. Uh, throughout Brazilian history, there's been incredible state violence uh, against dissenters of various kinds, uh, against social movements that have tried to push back against the enduring injustices of Brazilian society, which is, has, long, you know, has always been deeply unequal. Um, in terms of sort of political murders, uh, though, I would say it's not that common. Maybe the most high-profile one occurred in 1930 when the vice presidential candidate of Getúlio Vargas, a guy named João Pessoa, uh, was murdered. And, it, you know, it turned out that the actual assassination had more to do with uh, things in the candidate's personal life. He was, you know, having an affair with somebody's uh, wife. But once the assassination happens, it's used by various forces upset with the status quo to upend the political system. That might be the most sort of prominent example of, of, of the 20th century. Now, well, another prominent example that comes to mind of a political figure who was murdered, of course, was Chico Menges, who in the late 1980s really emerged as a uh, national figure, but also an international figure, um, as much for his political work as a member of the Workers' Party and a founding member of the Workers' Party uh, in, the, in the north of Brazil where he lived, but also as an environmental leader. Uh, so that, that's another prominent example of someone who was assassinated at the behest of local ranchers who saw their interests negatively affected by this political figure, but also by this environmentalist uh, figure. That got a whole lot of attention. But uh, I think it's also true to say that traditionally speaking, political violence has been 
uh, concentrated in local races, um, you know, with relatively little media attention scrutiny. It's much easier, for example, for local power brokers to squelch investigations uh, if, you know, the violence is relatively contained at the lower levels. Um, you know, we saw much more recently Marielle Franco in, in Rio, which was a local city councilwoman whose death attracted international uh, attention because of the implications, right, that this type of murder um, simply was not that common in Brazil compared to places like Colombia, for example, uh, you know, Paraguay, these places where this type of murder happens more often. And it, it shocked uh, Brazilians. Why are we seeing it beginning to affect high-profile national elections too? I think we're seeing this um, in part because of the fraying of Brazilian uh, political culture. This is a problem that I think predates the election of Jair Bolsonaro. He's a symptom of this, I think, of a, a society that is feeling uh, a sense of either democratic backsliding, that the constraints on violence, on, uh, you know, the, the constraints that keep political disagreements from escalating into violence, um, those seem to be slipping. And, you know, the latest assassination in Foz do Iguaçu um, is, is alarming, is an alarming chapter in that pattern. Now, it should be noted that national leaders in the Workers' Party um, have cautioned against panic, basically, right? That the state is able to safeguard candidates against this, that the Polícia Federal, Brazil's federal police, is redoubling its effort to keep the candidates safe. So uh, we're seeing a serious concern about political violence, but also from leaders a sense that institutions are capable of dealing with it. Now, how do you rate the response of political leaders? Is the political establishment doing enough to keep the situation from, I mean, boiling over? I think the challenge anytime something like this happens, really anywhere, for political leaders is to avoid the temptation to use it, uh, use tragedy to underscore or drive on their worst instincts. Um, and I view Bolsonarismo as a kind of combination of the basest instincts in politics. Um, and so while President Jair Bolsonaro denounced the killing, he also said that anyone who would support him, who would use violence, should be on the side of the left because he says the left is the one that's always violent and so on and so on. In other words, you know, not really taking the opportunity to say, look, we all as a society need to step back and think about what kind of politics we want. And I think that's important. All political leaders in the wake of the most recent political violence need to stop, step back and say, this is uh, unacceptable. We cannot allow this legitimate political contest, which is the election this year, to devolve into uh, partisans killing each other. That's a separate point from identifying specific culpability for what just happened. Now, André, particularly in response to the killing of Marcelo Arruda this past weekend, we have seen parts of the mainstream Brazilian media referring to the incident as a sort of, quote, gunfight between two men, laying the blame at the door of both Bolsonaro and Lula. But is that fair? I mean, are both sides of the aisle equally guilty of creating this current state of violent unrest? What we saw in the wake of Marcelo Arruda's 
assassination uh, in Foz do Iguaçu was uh, from some quarters of the media, right, an attempt to say, well, this is a product of the violence that both sides are spreading, or very specifically, that, well, we just don't know enough about what happened in this specific instance. We don't know if these guys had a fight before or if they knew each other and so on, which in my view is it's just an attempt to cloud what we do know in mystery. What we know, several eyewitness reports, several you know, uh, people speaking with, with the press, that the person who shot Marcelo Ahuda um, initiated the provocation, initiated the violence, first verbal violence and then actual violence, um, sort of in the name of Bolsonarismo. He said as much that he was going to kill everybody at the party uh, as a Bolsonaro supporter. Um, and I think that's really grave. And I don't think we should um, accept when politicians close to the president try to muddy the waters now and say, well, this has nothing to do with us. Um, clearly, one side of the political debate in Brazilian politics today is much more comfortable embracing the rhetoric and imagery of violence. It's not even subtle. I don't think they would even deny it prior to this most recent act of violence that the Bolsonaros, um, you know, the president, his sons, those close to them, they like, for lack of a better word, guns and rifles. Bolsonaro's main, uh, one of his main policy um, positions is that it should be easier for people to own weapons in Brazil. And so it's very difficult, I think, for a dispassionate political observer to see what just happened uh, in Foz do Iguaçu, this terrible tragedy, and think, you know what? I think the president's right. Maybe we do need more guns. When you could imagine in a society where guns are easier and easier to obtain, tragedies like this happening uh, weekly, monthly, and that's not a society I think any Brazilian uh, really wants. In 2018, we saw the assassination of Marielle Franco, and then later that year, Bolsonaro was stabbed on the campaign trail and nearly lost his life. Do we expect to see a different kind of campaign this year with regards to security and such like? Up until this point, I've been a little bit surprised at how little difference there's been between this campaign and, and previous campaigns. Uh, there have been several instances where, for example, Pre former President Lula has been put in situations that were at the very least um, somewhat skeptical, somewhat sketchy, somewhat unsafe that I would think uh, need to be reconsidered, and they are being reconsidered. The federal police has announced that they are moving up their scheduled increase in former President Lula's safety. Uh, usually it's after the party conventions, if I'm not mistaken, uh, but they're going to do it sooner, um, in part because of this increasing climate of um, fear for the safety of the candidates. And I would say so far... Most of the dangerous activity has been uh, targeted at former President Lula. Um, and as I said earlier, this is not entirely surprising, right? There is one side of this political uh, divide that embraces firearms, that, that likes firearms, that wants to have firearms, that wants to display and use firearms more freely. Now, Andre, you currently live in the U.S. and the American Congress is conducting a thorough investigation into last year's Capitol riots. 
And in Brazil, many far-right protesters have been linked to plans for similar acts in the country, which many fear could happen in the aftermath of the election. Do you think these fears are warranted? I absolutely think something like January 6th, the storming of the Capitol in the United States after Donald Trump's loss, could happen in Brazil. Uh, it's very easy to imagine um, Bolsonaro losing and his most fiery, passionate, committed supporters storming the Supreme Court, for example, the Supremo Tribunal Federal, uh, which has been a consistent enemy of Bolsonaro, at least the way he talks about the institution. Uh, so that's very easy to imagine. Now, I don't believe it would succeed in the same way that January 6th did not succeed in overturning the election or preventing Joe Biden from taking office. I don't believe a similar attempt in Brazil would prevent Bolsonaro from leaving if he is defeated, as every poll taken this year indicates he will. Uh, this is because uh, in the same way that Donald Trump simply did not have the institutional backing of enough members of the military, for example, enough members of Congress, the press, I don't believe these same ingredients uh, are on Bolsonaro's side either. I think there is just too, there are too many obstacles for him to overcome for him to successfully overturn uh, a defeat at, at the polls. So that should be hopeful for many people concerned about the fate of Brazilian democracy, both in Brazil and watching uh, fearfully from abroad. But one could argue that the armed forces, or at least their top brass, has indulged Bolsonaro's whims and attacks against the voting system. Defense Minister Paulo Sérgio Nogueira recently spoke before a House committee about a plan to hold a parallel vote count led by the military, which is completely outside of what the Constitution says. Now, in your opinion, can Brazilian institutions withstand such a frontal attack against them? There's no doubt that Bolsonaro has sought to chip away at the integrity of Brazilian institutions, uh, from the independence of the justice system in Brazil, for example, to the separation of powers between Congress, uh, the executive, and the courts. Um, and yet, and yet, those institutions remain. Um, and if anything, compared to, say, 2019, I think what, we, what we've seen recently is a real kind of, if not a turn against Bolsonaro, at least a hardening of certain walls, uh, certainly at least when it comes to the court, to say, for example, that we will not accept Bolsonaro's uh, attempts to change or undermine the electronic voting system, for example. Uh, we've seen countless serious institutional uh, observers and actors say that the polls uh, work that the electronic voting machines, not only have they been tested and praised domestically, but also internationally as well. So I think what we're seeing, and which I think is a positive sign, is that uh, institutions are taking seriously the threat of a Bolsonaro attempt to hold on to power. And they are attempting to rob him or to take away from him arguments that he might use to say, well, the polls were rigged or that the courts are against me. Um, I do think we are seeing some serious due diligence to prevent the president from having the arguments he might need to muddy the waters and stir things up and get his supporters inflamed. Now, does that mean it won't happen anyway? Probably not. I think that there are enough people that are committed to the president who will basically do what he says and follow him off a cliff, 
who will show up in Brasilia, for example, in the event of a loss and perhaps resort to violent steps, which is terrible. But I don't think it's an existential threat to Brazilian democracy. I don't think Bolsonarismo uh, is capable, uh, at least in the short term, as a spasm of violence post-electoral defeat of shifting the trajectory of Brazilian democracy. Long term, there is, I think, an insidious effect that Bolsonarismo will not disappear in the event of the president's loss. Congress is uh, filled with people who are very close to him, who share a similar ideology. So I see a long-term threat of institutional corrosion, but as a short-term spasm of violence, I think institutions are capable of repelling that. André, thank you very much for coming back to the show, and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you. It's always helpful and stimulating for me to talk these things through, so I appreciate it. Ciao. André Pagliarini is an assistant professor of history at Hampton Sydney College in Virginia. You can read his columns at Brazilian.report every month. And if you like Explaining Brazil, please give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It takes only a second and it will help us reach a broader audience. Or better yet, sign up for the Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model and your subscriptions fuel our journalism and keep us going and growing. And if you are already a subscriber, then you can give us some extra support by filling our coffee mugs with donations on Buy Me A Coffee. This membership program offers special perks like behind-the-scenes content and exclusive newsletters. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash brazilianreport. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. Explaining Brazil will be back next week. <laughs>